1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Why do you think they might think that? Don't make a bit of sense to me. Do you think there's anything wrong with your mind, really? Not a thing, Doc. Uh, excuse me, miss. Do you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk? Your hand is staining my window. God almighty, she's got you guys coming and going. A little change never hurt, huh? A little variety. Oh, Jesus! <laughs> Ah, oh, come on, you're not gonna say that now. You're not gonna say that now. You're gonna pull that henhouse shit now when the vote the chief just voted it was 10 to 9. Now, I want that television set turned on right now! I don't think he's overly psychotic. No, I want something! Yeah. I think he's dangerous. <laughs> Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out. What do you think you are, for Christ's sake? Crazy or something? Well, you're not. Hey, wait a minute. Ah! Oh, yeah. See how easy it is? Oh, oh, oh. We're from the uh, State Mental Institution. Uh, this is Dr. Cheswick, Dr. Tabor, Dr. Scanlon. I'm Dr. McMurphy. Hey, Mikey! What? All right, take him over! Get out over here! Get out, Tate! <laughs> How about it, you creep, you lunatics, <laughs> mental defective? <laughs> Thank you, Mac. Thank you. I'll never forget you.
going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Hello, welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. And by we, there's myself, Blaine Dollar, my ever-present co-host, Trey Hooks. Hello, everyone. And today we are joined by a special guest here. He's a returning guest, so you should be familiar with Mr. Paul Spataro. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me again. Well, we can't cover the year that saw the release of Jaws and not invite the host of Is It Jaws on to join us. <laughs> I appreciate that respect. Yes, this time we are looking at One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So this was released on November 19th, 1975, directed by Milos Forman, screenplay by Lawrence Hoban and Bo Goldman, based on a novel by Ken Kesey that I've owned for 10 years and still haven't gotten around to reading. So, quick plot summary. This is, again, courtesy the editors at Wikipedia. In the autumn of 1963, Randall McMurphy is on an Oregon work farm for the statutory rape of a 15-year-old girl. He pretends to be mentally insane in order to get himself transferred to a mental institution and avoid hard labor. The ward is dominated by head nurse Mildred Ratchet, a cold, passive-aggressive tyrant who intimidates her patients. The other patients include young, anxious, stuttering Billy Bibbit, Charlie Cheswick, who is prone to temper tantrums, delusional childlike Martini, the articulate, repressed homosexual Dale Harding, belligerent and profane Max Tabor, epileptics Jim Seafelt and Bruce Fredrickson, quiet but violent-minded Scanlon, tall, deaf-mute Native American Chief Brondon, and several others with chronic conditions. And I see there some of those details I think were taken from the novel and unrevealed in the movie. Ratchet sees McMurphy's lively, rebellious presence as a threat to her authority, which she responds to by confiscating and rationing the patient's cigarettes and suspending their card-playing privileges. McMurphy finds himself in a battle of wills against Ratchet. He steals a school bus, escaping with several patients to go fishing on the Pacific coast and encouraging them to discover their own abilities and find self-confidence. After an orderly tells him that the judge's sentence does not apply to people who are deemed to be criminally insane, McMurphy makes plans to escape, encouraging Chief Brondon to throw a hydrotherapy console through a window. It is also revealed that McMurphy, Chief, and Tabor are the only non-chronic patients involuntarily committed to the institution. The rest of them are self-committed and could leave at any time, but are too afraid to do so. After Cheswick bursts into a fit and demands his cigarettes, which had been rationed by Ratched, McMurphy fights with the orderlies and Chief intervenes. Ratched sends Chief Cheswick and McMurphy to the shock shop as a result of this insubordination. While awaiting their punishment, McMurphy offers Chief a stick of gum and discovers he can speak and hear, having feigned his deaf muteness to avoid engaging with anyone. After being subjective to electroconvulsive therapy, McMurphy returns to the ward pretending to be brain damaged, but then reveals that the treatment has made him even more determined to defeat Ratchet. McMurphy and Chief make plans to escape, but decide to throw a secret Christmas party for their friends after Ratchet and the orderlies leave for the night. McMurphy sneaks two prostitutes, Candy and Rose, and bottles of alcohol into the ward. He bribes Guard Turkle to allow this. After the party, McMurphy and Chief prepare to escape, inviting Billy to come with them. Billy refuses, but asks for a date with Candy. McMurray arranges for him to have sex with her. 
McMurphy and the others get drunk, and McMurphy falls asleep instead of making his escape with Chief. Ratchet arrives in the morning to find the ward in disarray and most of the patients passed out. She discovers Billy and Candy together, then aims to embarrass Billy in front of everyone. Billy manages to overcome his stutter and stands up to Ratchet. When she threatens to tell his mother, Billy cracks under the pressure and reverts to stuttering. Ratchet has him placed in the doctor's office. Moments later, McMurphy punches an orderly while trying to escape out of a window with the chief, causing the other orderlies to intervene. Meanwhile, Billy commits suicide by slitting his throat with broken glass. Ratchet tries to ease the situation by calling for the day's routine to continue as usual, and an enraged Murphy strangles Ratchet. The orderlies subdue McMurphy, saving Ratchet's life. Sometime later, Ratchet is wearing a neck brace and speaking with a weak voice, and Harding now leads the now unsuspended card playing. McMurphy is nowhere to be found, leading to rumors that he has escaped. Later that night, Chief sees McMurphy being returned to his bed. He greets him, elated that McMurphy had kept his promise not to escape without him, but notices McMurphy is unresponsive and physically limp, and discovers lobotomy scars on his forehead. Chief tearfully hugs McMurphy and says, you're coming with me, before smothering him to death with a pillow. He then lifts the hydrotherapy console off the floor, smashes it through the window gates, and escapes alone, thus being the one who flew over the cuckoo's nest, all while the remaining inmates, having woken up by the glass breaking noise, watch and cheer him on. So one thing I want to amend in that synopsis is that, at least in the film, he, McMurphy wasn't encouraging Chief to lift the hydrotherapy console the first time. He was going to do it himself and failed. Um, you guys want to have any other comments on that synopsis there? Well, I think you hit on the one point where they go into the, I guess, problems that these patients are having, which we don't get specifically told to us in the movie. It's, you know, they just kind of show us that they're troubled people. And, and I guess you can figure some of it out, but, but they're not very specific as to what their issues are. And, and I think that's better that way because I think it would feel very dialogue heavy if they have to say, this is this person's problem and this person has this problem. You know what I mean? It, it, it wouldn't feel natural. It would just feel like exposition, unnecessary exposition. So, so you're left to kind of figure out. Uh, I think, you know, with, uh, they say, what is it? They say repressed homosexual for, uh, for Harding. I mean, I, if, you, if you listen to what he's talking about with his wife and everything, you know, you, you, you can read that undercurrent. And I guess at the time that this story was written, being homosexual was considered to be, you know, so much more of a problem that, that somebody might actually end up in some sort of an institution because of the, the stress of trying to hide it from themselves. And it seems that's, that's what I think we have in this case is where somebody's trying to hide it from himself. Yeah, I would think so, too. I can see it in retrospect, but on but on the viewings that I've had of it, I didn't pick it up. I thought it was maybe more, you know, because he was so concerned with order that I thought it was maybe more of a form of OCD or something that he had that had him um, institutionalized. That's exactly the way I always viewed it. You know, I saw him as, you know, and it, it may be just kind of a, a connection by having, you know, having seen. The only other thing I remember him ever in, that particular actor, is on the TV show The Odd Couple. He played Felix Unger's younger brother. So I kind of saw him as a Felix Unger type. And, and that's, that's kind of what I accepted him as. And I never really made him, even though he talks about sexuality. And, and Nurse Ratchin mentions sexuality with his wife and all. That never really, I never made that connection as far as his disorder goes. I, I did see him as more of an OCD guy. Yeah, I think the only one who explicitly implies that was Tabor, but he didn't know if he was just doing that to wind him up. Yeah, T Tabor seems to constantly try to wind him up. 
Yeah. So should we talk a little bit about the cast now? Because how many careers did this launch? Well, you launched or, or, or propelled, you know, people who were already mm-hmm. going. But virtually, virtually everybody in this cast, I have images of in my mind doing other things. Not necessarily better things, but other things that, you know, there's nobody in here or very, very few people who this is the only thing I can think of them in. I, I, you know, the, off the top of my head, the only person I can think of right off the bat that I don't remember anything else is Candy. And 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 I, in looking into that a little bit, apparently Shelley Duval was considered for that part. But, uh, you know, she's the only one. Everybody else I, I remember from something else. Yeah, I think for me, Nurse Pilbo was another one. And she actually only has the two IMDb credits. But running through the rest, Jack Nicholson was established at this point as McMurphy. But this is this is in my mind his greatest performance, and you know his other Academy Award performances aside, this is the performance. Yeah, you know how sometimes there's kind of that shorthand caricature that people build up of a- an actor, like you know there's shorthand ticks that people use to like imitate Pacino or De Niro. I feel like this is where everybody draws from when they imitate Jack Nicholson. Yeah. At this point, he was a known quantity. So people would, when they sat down to see it, they're like, oh yeah, I've seen him before. But I think this film, looking at his filmography, this could be the point where they start saying, oh, there's a new film with Jack Nicholson in it. Let's go see it because Jack Nicholson is in it. Yeah. This this is what propelled him to stardom. Yeah. Or superstardom. He was already a star. This is superstardom. Yeah. Uh, we've got Louise Fletcher as Nurse Ratched. I mean, to me, this role and Space Pope Karen on Deep Space Nine are probably her two best known roles. Yes, but but she does have you know a, a reasonably you know sizable body of work. Otherwise, yeah, it's not that these are the only two roles she's done. It's just these two stand out because they are the only thing that they really have in common is the, the passive aggressive control freak. But they are two completely different ways for that to manifest <laughs> they're both hateable <laughs> yeah which apparently is the complete opposite of louise felcher in real life who you know when uh Sirach lofton was sick one day on deep space nine she baked him a bunch of his favorite cookies she was incredibly sick with the flu but wouldn't let them reschedule because of her <laughs> yeah I've, I've heard that she was very popular with the people that she worked with but she plays she plays the cloying so well the the passive aggressive, I guess, is is the big thing that she just does so so well. The one person who gets an introducing credit is Brad Dourif as Billy Bibbit. He has had quite the career. I associate him largely with the X Files, where he played Luther Lee Boggs. But he does have a a very little bit of a varied career. Not so much. There is a, a Voyager meme where they've got accurate dialogue where his character saying, "I'm not crazy," and then the response is Tuvok. With a new caption, dude, you're played by Brad Dourif. Everyone he plays is crazy. <laughs> I know him from several things, but when I hear his name, I always think of him from Dune. Yeah, he. this was his debut. So he did have the end introducing, but running through some of his film credits, we've got Dune, we've got Blue Velvet, Mississippi Burning, the Child's Play franchise, where he's the voice of Chucky, Critters for Color of Night, Exorcist 3, for whatever reason, does stand out for me. Yeah, Alien Resurrection. like, And of course, he's Grima Wormtongue in the Lord of the Rings films. Yes. And and, and another just excellent actor. And, I mean, he, he knows, 
I think he knows his limitations and he, you know, he stays within that, you know, he, he's never playing the, you know, the handsome leading man, but what he plays, he plays so well. Yeah. Oh yeah. He, he is a fairly incredible actor. Now we've other people who were, you know, not their first jobs, but again, propelled to stardom. We have Christopher Lloyd as Max Tabor, Danny DeVito as Martini. Vincent Chiavelli as Bruce Fredrickson. And I, I, I believe that Danny DeVito and, and Jack Nicholson developed like a, a lifelong friendship from this too. And that they've, you know, they've been in several things together, I believe. Yeah, and uh, not just that, but also this is where Jack Nicholson and Scatman Crothers first worked together. Uh, Scatman Crothers would also work with Nicholson in The Shining. Which makes it interesting that Shelley Duvall was considered for Candy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there, there's no shortage of people where it's... You watch them. I keep forgetting Danny DeVito's in this because he looks very different when he's constantly smiling with a full head of hair. <laughs> we we uh, we quote him a lot too with with the I'll bet a dime, I'll bet a dime. <laughs> so this this was it, uh, you know this is a dime. This is nothing. Try and smoke it. Yeah, yeah. So DeVito and Christopher Lloyd would work together three years later in Taxi as well. So yeah, they're. Those are the the primary actors, at least. Very, very recognizable in many other things is Vincent Chiavelli. Oh, yes. Yeah, he's one of those guys that has that distinct look. So you don't necessarily know him by name, but he's very much an, oh, that guy. I think he's probably most recognizable to people as the, uh, the train ghost from the movie Ghost. If anybody who's seen that movie, he's very, he has a very prominent part in it. And, and he's very memorable. Yeah, Wikipedia says his most memorable roles are Frederick Sid in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Mr. Vargas in Fast Times at Richmond High, The Subway Ghost in Ghost, The Organ Grinder in Batman Returns, Chester in People vs. Larry Flint, Dr. Kaufman in Tomorrow Never Dies, and Maynard Smith in Man on the Moon. Yeah, I, I have a fondness for the comedies of uh, Steve Holland, and he's in Better Off Dead as one of the teachers of John Cusack. He's good in that film as well if, if i remember right he, he's a brooklyn born guy and i think late in life he may have uh he, he may have gone off to uh to italy to kind of just live like the retired you know enjoyable life sipping on wine eating fancy foods that kind of thing and and he was married to uh miss beasley for moonlighting yes they were married from 1985 to 1988 and they appeared together in one episode they had one son, uh, music composer Andrea Chiavelli, and then he married a harpist in 1992, remained married until Chiavelli's death in 2005. And yes, he was living in uh, Palermo, Sicily at the time, died of lung cancer. So yeah, he was also in an episode of WKRP. That I don't recall. It was very brief when they had the contest that was actually reported as $5,000 instead of fifty. He was the scammer who came and claimed the prize money before the real winner showed up. I think he was in the movie Night Shift, which is a personal favorite of mine. And he was the, the delivery guy who would always deliver Henry Winkler his sandwiches, which were always made wrong. He delivered them at like an egg salad sandwich. And when, when Henry Winkler was finally trying to stand up for himself and he says, you know, this is wrong. And the guy's like, what's wrong with it? He says, it's got mustard on it. And he takes the top of the bread and he just, he, he wipes all the mustard onto the door jam and then puts the bread back and says, here, and gives it back to him. 
Uh, I'm pretty sure that was Vincent Chiavelli. We can double check the IMDb now. IMDb also lists Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai mm. as one of his best known. I'm on record as not having been a fan of that movie. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, he was. I just checked. I'm seeing on his uh, Wikipedia page. He was He was the guy in Night Shift. I am right. I like being right once in a while. Yeah, also two episodes of Buffy. But I just, yeah, the Buckaroo Banzai also stands out because he would have been there with Christopher Lloyd again. Hmm. And it's, I'm not, I don't know. I don't regret watching that movie. Uh, it, on the Is It Jaws scale, I'd have put it as a Jaws 3. I, I, I did that one with... Uh... Bill Robinson and Gene Hendricks, and, and I started off, I, I took a different approach to that movie. I said, tell me why you like this movie. <laughs> I just let them go. Uh, one other person I'm going to mention here as a cast member, uncredited as woman in crowd on pier, we have Angelica Houston. Ooh. Oh, that's right, because she and Nicholson would have been dating at this time. Yes. Yeah, because they were together even a couple years earlier when the whole... Uh, Polanski thing went down so and um you know it it's worth noting they <clears throat> they filmed this at an actual mental institution and the person who plays Dr. John Spivey was the like the head doctor at that real mental institution okay that's uh Dean R. Brooks so Paul when did you first see this film I did not see this in the movie theater I would say I probably first saw it when I was in high school, you know, several years after that. And it, it was actually a, a frequent, frequently watched movie for me through the 1980s. And probably from 1990 until now, I had not rewatched it, even though I had seen it many times before that. And I found it interesting watching it for today that my perspective as far as the quality of the movie has not really changed but my perspective of the tone of the movie has. I used to view it more as more on its comedy elements, and it has plenty of comedy elements in it. You know, when, when they would show these inmates and show their quirks and everything, I would find them amusing. And, and I still do, but now I'm a little bit more conscious of the fact that these are ill people. And I'm, I'm looking at it from, from a little bit more of a sympathetic point of view and a little bit less of a comedy point of view. And I think it works either way, frankly. But I kind of like that I feel that I've evolved enough that I can look at it a little differently. So, so it's, it's, it was a, a, a strange viewing for me. And it's, it's always had a strange feel because it's really, when you think about it, it's a very sad movie. Uh, a lot, you know, you're seeing these very sad lives, these people who, who, have a, a miserable existence and it ends on a, on kind of a downer note. You know, it, it, there's the upbeat thing of the chief running off, but, but you know, what happens to McMurphy and McMurphy's a bad guy. <laughs> it's not like he's a mm -hmm. good guy that you end up feeling, you know, you do root for him because of the charisma of, of Jack Nicholson and that they make the very wise move of having his antagonist be somebody who you could dislike more than him. But it, it's just, it, it, it evokes so many different types of emotions watching it that I think that speaks to the film's greatness, frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that really kind of stood out to me on this watching, or on this viewing, Paul. You can argue that, especially from the middle point of the movie on, his manipulations are less harmful to the patients, and in some cases 
trying to do good for them, but McMurphy's every bit as manipulative as Ratchet is. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's, you know, again, he's a bad guy. He's faking being mentally ill to get out of a work detail, and he totally miscalculates. He's yet another person who is damned by the fact that he's not quite as smart as he thinks he is, and he thinks he's getting out of it all, and that he's just going to, you know, when his prison sentence is up, they're going to just release him, and then he finds out to his horror that, no, 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 if you're insane, you're staying here. So faking that you were insane was a very bad move. You should have just done the work detail and, and you would be out, you know, in, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and just to, to remind everyone, yeah, they point out he was arrested in the first place for statutory rape. That's why he was serving. Now, he claims that the 15-year-old could pass for 18 and claimed she was 18. We don't know if that's actually the case for him. But yeah, to to Paul's point, they have built a sympathetic rapist, which is incredibly difficult to do. I, I think it's, e it's easier to make a sympathetic statutory rapist than it is a sympathetic rapist, only because you yeah. can accept that it's a possibility that somebody might think that somebody underage is older than they are if they present themselves as being such. Yeah, well, look at um, Craig Charles of Red Dwarf fame. He did serve two years for statutory rape. Every single member of that cast and crew was lining up in his defense for the court trial because the the girl he was dating had the fake IDs and had everyone convinced that she was of age. And it was only when their pictures appeared together in the tabloids that people who knew her from before she ran away from home said, oh no, this is how old she really is. But it wasn't just Craig Charles that was convinced that the girl was 19. It was every other member of that cast and crew, and they were together for about three months before it came out because she was avoiding the press. So that's one where, yeah, I can sympathize because even the woman he was with said, yeah, I got the fake IDs and, you know, they didn't release pictures because she was underage. But when every single person in the workplace that she was frequently hanging out at believed she was 21. I think it also helps that it's it's a little bit of exposition at the beginning of the film. But since that's not really part of the story, you, you don't see the girl. It's not constantly brought up. So it it's pretty easy to get engrossed in the film and forget that fact about five minutes after it was said. Yeah. I'm just thinking, I don't remember what movie it was, but I do recall years ago seeing a movie where there was, I think it was a, a trial that was going on and the guy was accused of statutory rape. And during the trial, the girl who he had relations with was brought up and she was dressed in her, basically her school girl, girl outfit. And you'd look at it and you're horrified, like, oh my God, how could, you know, you can't make that mistake. Mm -hmm. And then they brought out pictures of her on the night that this occurred. And she was, you know, wearing all made up and wearing her sexy clothes and everything. And she clearly looked over 18. Uh, so, you know, like that just stands out to me as I could see where somebody can make that mistake. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying that if somebody believes it, you know, at, at my age, if, if somebody had, you know, relations with somebody under 40, I would think I would consider it statutory rape. But that's, you know, that's that's a different matter. It is. I'm just, I, I wonder why they left that bit in there. Because as Trey said, it was minor. They could have very easily said, well, this is also a guy with a history of five assaults and make it assault number five that had him in prison. And we wouldn't have that issue because we've, we have seen he has a temper, but when he does start fighting in this one, when he starts throwing punches, it's in someone's defense. And in the, in the novel, he was suspected of but the girl had never brought charges. What he was arrested for was gambling and battery. Okay. 
So it's not something they left in. It's something that they kind of added then. Yeah. But I, I think it was, you know, I, I don't know. Like Paul says, I think it kind of reinforces that the protagonist is not a good guy. I mean, yes, it can happen that someone, like Paul said, it can happen that somebody can be fooled. And with what we see in this about McMurphy in this movie, I totally believe he knew. And this, this also just, you know, again, you know, I joked around. I said, you know, at my age, because I'm, I just turned 60. So to me, the idea of somebody being with somebody under 40 is, is ludicrous. There, there, is, there is a scale there in my mind. Because what is Randall McMurphy in this movie? 30, 35? I don't think he should be with an 18-year-old, even if she is legal at that point. So being with an 18-year-old, if you're like 35, to me is still wrong. It may not be legally wrong, but it's, there's a moral implication there to me. Yeah, I think the standard creepiness rule is half your age in years plus seven. So if he's 35, we're looking at 25 years old and up. Yes. And 25 years old is the absolute lower limit. Yeah, I, I always heard that was the uh, the formula for the trophy bride. Uh, but but anyway, uh, you know, it, it, there, it doesn't make him a good guy, even if she, even if he, you know, honestly believed she was 18. But we're not supposed to think he's a good guy. We're just supposed to root for him. We're supposed to be charmed by him. And I think we are. Yeah. Yeah, he's supposed to be the lesser evil. And here it feels like he is. Because what what he is doing, the choices he is making, do seem to be having a positive impact on the other patients. Oh, he does. He definitely has a positive impact on them. That, that's no question. And and that's that's where, you know, you get the silver lining for him because he clearly seems to develop affection for most of the fellow patients, in particular, Billy Bibby. Yeah. Uh, so, Trey, when was the first time you watched this? Probably around 1994. So, you know, I've mentioned it before on the show, but I worked at the late lamented Suncoast Motion Picture Company out of high school. And uh, this would always be part of their, you know, two for $22 sell whenever the Academy Awards came around. And w one of the questions on, on this little movie trivia test you had to take when you applied were, what were the only three films to have taken the top five Oscar category? So at, at that point to where I really felt like I was in control of like my own free time, I really started delving into film hard, and uh, it was one of the first purchases that I bought. This was this is actually my second viewing. My first viewing would have been a little bit after that. It would have been more like 1999. I mentioned HMV before because that's how I built most of my Best Picture collection. I was grabbing the titles as that company was going out of business. But in 1999, they had a deal where if you bought 25 DVDs, they would give you the player for free. Mm. So that was how I got my first well, my first DVD player was a DVD-ROM for the computer, but the first standalone player was in that buy 25, get a player free deal. And this was one of the 25 movies that we picked out based on reputation. It was one of the first ones I saw, and yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But as Paul said, this is not necessarily a happy movie. It's intense. So I watched it and said, yeah, that's worth watching again, but it took a while before I actually got around to doing so. Because you have to be ready for it. So any other comments, or should we move on to all the nominees for the ceremony for this year? Well, I, I, you know, I think the only other comment is, like I, I was saying earlier about this movie depends on your point of view as far as you watch it, because you can, if, you, if you're willing to numb yourself to the, to the sad parts, it can almost be viewed as a comedy, because there's so many comedy elements with these people. But it's played, I, I just really feel like it's played so well, because 
there, there is comedy to it without ever really making it get to the absurd. And yet there's that underlying sadness to everything and to note, to see the lives these people have. And I think that it really kind of came home to me this time watching it in the scene when they talk about how many of them are there voluntarily. And, and you know, you see McMurphy's shock at it all. But like the, the sad lives, the, the people, that these people had such sad lives that this is better than what they were living. And it's when you, like when you think about it from that perspective, there's just, you know, so much undercurrent there. And then there's also, you know, you got to keep in mind, you know, the, the novel, I believe, is written as a counterculture expose of sorts. And, and that, you know, it's being shown, you know, McMurphy is your protagonist for a reason, because I think he's supposed to be the, you know, the poster boy for the 60s counterculture guy up against society and, and Nurse Ratchet is society. So, I, I, you know, I think there's just a lot there when you want to view it, you know, in its whole. And it's... By and large, it's a timeless piece, you know? I mean, yeah, the, you know, the fashions and the cars, you know, kind of make it of a certain period, but, the, you know, the concept of people not being able to cope with the modern world, whatever the modern world is, and seeking refuge, and then there being people who want to take advantage of that, th- this isn't specifically a 60s or a 70s film. No, it's... Not even clearly in 1963. You, we can pick up on that. I think I saw it. There's one board that they run by that actually says the year is 1963. It's just on the wall, but I don't think it ever comes up in dialogue. Well, the only place where you'd have a real thing to place it in the dialogue is when they talk about the World Series and which year it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And that, that to me, is one of the great scenes, too, when he fakes the, the announcing of the World Series and, and he gets all the other inmates behind him cheering and going crazy. I just think that's that's one, you know, that's like a, a, a goosebump scene. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, moving on to the 48th annual award ceremony. The awards were given on March 29th, 1976 in the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, hosted by Walter Matthau, Robert Shaw, George Siegel, Goldie Hawn, and Gene Kelly, directed by Marty Pacetta. Best Picture clearly went to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, beating out Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, and Nashville. Best Director went to Milos Forman for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, beating out Federico Fellini for Amarcord, Stanley Kubrick for Barry Lyndon, Sidney Lumet for Dog Day Afternoon, and Robert Altman for Nashville. Best Actor went to Jack Nicholson for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, beating out Walter Matthau for The Sunshine Boys, Al Pacino for Dog Day Afternoon, Maximilian Schell for The Man in the Glass Booth, and James Whitmore for Give Him Hell, Harry. Best Actress went to Louise Fletcher for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, beating out Isabella Gianni for The Story of Adele H., Anne Margaret for Tommy, Glenda Jackson for Hedda, and Carol Kane for Hester Street. Best Supporting Actor went to George Burns for The Sunshine Boys. At age 80, he was, at the time, the oldest Academy Award acting winner. That record's been broken twice, but he set a record here. He beat out Brad Dourif for Cuckoo's Nest, Burgess Meredith for Day of the Locust, Chris Sarandon for Dog Day Afternoon, and Jack Warden for Shampoo. I'm sure the name Bridges Meredith will come up again in our next podcast. Best Supporting Actress goes to Lee Grant for Shampoo, beating out Ronnie Blakely for Nashville, Sylvia Miles for Farewell My Lovely, Lily Tomlin for Nashville, and Brenda Vaccaro for Jacqueline Suzanne's Once Is Not Enough. Best Original Screenplay went to Dog Day Afternoon, beating out Amarcord, and Now My Love, Lies My Father Told Me, and Shampoo. 
The screenplay adapted from other material went to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, beating out the scripts for Barry Lyndon, The Man Who Would Be King, Profumo di Donna, and The Sunshine Boys. Best foreign language film went to Dersu Uzala from the Soviet Union, beating out letters from Marussia from Mexico, Profuma di Donna from Italy, The Promised Land from Poland, and Sandakin No. 8 from Japan. Best documentary feature went to The Man Who Skied Down Everest, beating out California Reich, Fighting for Our Lives, The Incredible Machine, and The Other Half of the Sky, a China memoir. Best Documentary Short Subject went to The End of the Game, beating out Arthur and Lily, Millions of Years Ahead of Man, Probes in Space, and Whistling Smith. Best Live Action Short Film went to Angel and Big Joe, beating out Conquest of Light, Dawn Flight, A Day in the Life of Bonnie Consola, and Double Talk. Best Animated Short Film went to Great, beating out Kick Me, Monsieur Pointu, and Sisyphus. Best Original Score John Williams took the award home for Jaws, beating out these scores for Birds Do It, Bees Do It, Bite the Bullet, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and The Wind and the Lion. Best Scoring Original Song Score and Adaptation or Scoring Adaptation. That went to Barry Lyndon, beating out Funny Lady and Tommy. Best Original Song went to I'm Easy from Nashville, beating out How Lucky Can You Get from Funny Lady, Now That We're in Love from The Whiffs, Richard's Window from The Other Side of the Mountain, and the theme from Mahogany, Do You Know Where You're Going To? Best Sound went to Jaws, beating out Bite the Bullet, Funny Lady, The Hindenburg, and The Wind and the Lion. Best Costume Design went to Barry Lyndon, beating out The Four Musketeers, Funny Lady, The Magic Flute, and The Man Who Would Be King. The Man Who Would Be King was done by Edith Head, who I think holds the records for the most nominations for a female for any Academy Awards. Best Art Direction went to Barry Lyndon, beating out The Hindenburg, The Man Who Would Be King, Shampoo, and The Sunshine Boys. Best Cinematography went to Barry Lyndon, beating out Day of the Locust, Funny Lady, The Hindenburg, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Best Film Editing went to Jaws, beating out Dog Day Afternoon, The Man Who Would Be King, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Three Days of the Condor. So in terms of multiple wins and nominations, the most nominations were nine for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, beating out Barry Lyndon with seven, Dog Day Afternoon with six, Funny Lady in Nashville with five, Jaws, The Man Who Would Be King, Shampoo, and The Sunshine Boys with four, Hindenburg with three, and Amarcord, Bite the Bullet, Day of the Locust, Profuma de Donna, Tommy and the Wind of the Lion each had two. Multiple of winners, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest won five, Barry Lyndon won four, and Jaws won three. The Academy Honorary Award went to Mary Pickford. The Irving Jean Thalborg Memorial Award went to Mervyn Leroy. Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award went to Jules C. Stein. And the Special Achievement Awards went to Albert Wicklock and Glenn Robinson for the visual effects work on the Hindenburg and Peter Burkos for sound effect work on the Hindenburg. So that wraps these up, at least for the Academy Awards. So did you guys have any general comments on these before we move on? Well, you know, this was for quite a while famous as only the second movie ever to win Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director. Um, and Best Writer. Uh, okay, yeah. I, you know, I didn't even realize that was part of the equation there. You know, because it happened one night, you had all of that. And then I think Silence of the Lambs actually repeated it. Yep. But, and I think those are the only three that have ever done it. But anyway. At the time of this recording, yes. <laughs> yes, who knows what changes. Best Picture. Now, I can honestly say I've never seen Barry Lyndon or Nashville. But I can say that Dog Day Afternoon and Jaws is tremendous competition. Because those are two great movies, in my opinion. I would certainly edge this over Dog Day Afternoon, 
And then it comes down to, you know, what would I think between this and Jaws? And in, we all know that I have a great fondness for Jaws. I think if it was 1975, I would say these are two great, great movies. And the gravitas of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest would probably make me vote for that. In 2023, I probably would say just because of rewatchability over the years, I would give Jaws the slight edge. But boy, do, do they ever run neck and neck, in my opinion. This this is just such a great production on, on so many levels, and the acting, the directing, everything, it's all deserved. Uh, I always kind of wondered if Louise Fletcher should have been supporting actress instead of actors, because she, you know, I, I don't even know how much screen time she has, but she makes such an impression that I always kind of thought that her screen time felt like more than it was. But you know, I, I can't I can't argue with it. So I'm I'm fine with her. And and the only performance I've seen competing against her, the only one I actually saw was Anne Margaret and Tommy. And and Louise Fletcher blows that away, as far as I'm concerned. The other pictures I haven't seen, so I can't really comment. What I'm about to say probably isn't fair because I haven't seen Amarcord, but I, I know it was his first feature film. But at the same time, this was Milos Forman's first English film. Spielberg should, for Jaws, Spielberg should have been in the best director hunt. I can't say he should have won. Didn't even get nominated. But he should have been nominated. It's amazing that he was not nominated. And like I said, the only thing that I can think of is these are, with the exception of Milos Forman, these are all already stars in the directing world and this was his i mean we all know you know he did episodes for night gallery and he did duel but this was his first theatrical um release so i can only assume that that's what kept him out yeah looking at it he had for feature films he'd done duel in 71 and sugarland express in 74 before this uh sugarland express yeah yeah i mean he'd also directed the first regular episode of Columbo. So there was the, the original made-for-TV movie, and then they did another made-for-TV movie to test the waters about taking it to series. And when they decided to go to series, he was the director of that episode, and they were so impressed with him that they named a boy genius character after him three or four episodes later. Yeah, so he definitely should have had a nomination. Yeah, but I, I think I'm looking at the list. I'm struggling not quite the same way you have because of the Best Director nominations. I've only seen Barry Lennon and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but when you're up against Federico Fellini, Cindy Lumet, and Robert Altman, yeah, Spielberg did Best Director nomination level work, but who do you bump to make room for him? It was a tough year. This this is probably not fair because he's made some movies that are considered by people to be all-time greats, but Robert Altman's sensibilities don't really fit my viewing pleasure. I, I can acknowledge how, what a great director he was, but... I don't see his movie. His movies don't fill me with that awe that other people's do. So I, w- I would honestly bump him without any any problem from my own personal point of view. Yeah, and I might be tempted to do the same with Fellini because I know, again, tremendous amount of respect for him with the industry, and I can see why, but I just something in, in his films, it doesn't really grab me. But still, yeah, looking at the film industry as a whole, like th- this is a murderer's row of nominees for Best Director this year. So and I haven't seen The Sunshine Boys yet, but... I don't know, George Burns has never really impressed me as an actor. I'm almost wondering if that was if his Best Supporting Actor award was more of a a lifetime achievement 
kind of thing slipped in there. Over the years, supporting actor and supporting actress have often been the popular vote as opposed to what the industry truly thinks is the greatest performance. I've seen The Sunshine Boys. I think George Burns was really good in it. I don't know that he was better than Brad Dourif. In fact, I doubt that he was better than Brad Dourif. Uh, Chris Sarandon's part was good, but I, I, I'm, you know, he he was borderline nomination as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I don't remember ever seeing The Day of the Locust, but I do love Jack uh, Burgess Meredith's work in general, so I could see where his performance could merit a nomination. Sunshine Boys, though, you know, it, it's it it is a very good performance. And just as a side note, I managed to see Sunshine Boys Boys live on Broadway, starring uh, Jack Klugman and Tony Randall, which was just great fun for me. Yeah, with those two, I can see it. But yeah, I wonder if maybe Brad Dourif, if they were a little hesitant, because sometimes if it's your breakout role, you don't get the award because they don't know how much acting it is and if you know, you're going to be able to sustain that over time. So often the first performance does not get you the award. But I, I do feel that over the years they've, they've shown that they're willing to give a nod to the popularity of certain movies in the supporting actor and actress category, whereas they look a little bit more to the, you know, to the artsy in the actor and actress and picture very frequently, which is why I, I, I'm kind of comfortable with this getting the nod over Jaws in 1975, because this definitely has more of a, a message to it. And in terms of you know, people maybe doing the Lifetime Achievement of the Popular Movie Award for the Best Supporting, we'll talk about that with the nominees in two podcasts. <laughs> so the rest don't particularly stand out at me. Or to me, aside from, I mean, I don't know, fans of the podcast know that I'm a huge Stanley Kubrick fan, but Barry Lyndon is one I haven't revisited. It didn't really grab me the way most of his films do. So here, I'm okay with Lyndon not winning. All right, so looking at the Best Picture winners, Paul has chimed in. Trey, what do you think? Did they make the right call? You know, I I can only judge based off of, you know, of the now, because that's, you know, that's when I'm seeing these and watching these. I can't dispute their call. I find Jaws to be the most enjoyable film out of the pack. So if you were asking me to vote today what was the best film out of these, I would say Jaws. But I can't say that the Academy got it wrong in 1975. If One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a best picture worthy film. So it sounds like we're largely in agreement here, because of the three nominees, or of the five nominees, the three I've seen are Jaws, Barry Lyndon, and Cuckoo's Nest. And whether I pick Jaws or Cuckoo's Nest really depends on my mood in the moment I'm being asked. Because they are, they're both flawless films with entirely different goals who leave you feeling two completely different things. And that's what it boils down to. I think Jaws has a lighter ending, so it's easier to rewatch. But... Yeah, again, I think they are two virtually flawless films, so it's really hard to pick one over the other. So we're saying that One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is Jaws. Yes. Yes. We could do that formally at the end, since this is going to be another cross-posted, <laughs> crossover podcast. I don't think we have to do it. I think we've all given enough information to, to, to that rating stands out already. So in that case, why don't you just remind the listeners who are mostly on the 99 Years feed what the Jaws scale is. Jaws scale is... A rating that we do in my podcast is it yours, and it doesn't necessarily correlate to the quality of the actual films, with the exception of Jaws. On the Jaws scale, we rate our movies as either Jaws, which is saying it is basically a perfect 
virtually flawless movie. Uh, Jaws 2, which would be a step down from that, but still a really solid movie worthy of multiple rewatches uh, and, you know, very, very little that you can criticize. Jaws 3 is, you know, an okay movie. You enjoyed watching it and you moved on with your life. And Jaws 4 is a bad movie. Yeah, so I think we're all coming down and because it's neck and neck with Jaws. We're all voting at Jaws as long as we agree that, yes, Jaws does deserve that. Is it Jaws rating? Yes, exactly. Which I think we do. It doesn't apply here, but there's also the rarely invoked Jaws 15, so bad it's good ranking. That is true. That is true. That's, I, I, I would be loath to come on to uh, your show and have to read it that. Yeah, we haven't had one that's that low up to this point. But we'll talk about that more next month because we'll hit uh, another of our 10 episode milestone markers with that. Uh, before we get there, we'll go through the Golden Globes for this year. So for the best motion picture in the drama category, they gave it to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest above Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, and Nashville. So it seems like an identical lineup there. For comedy or musical best picture, that went to The Sunshine Boys over Funny Lady, Return of the Pink Panther, Shampoo, and Tommy. Best performance in a drama, Jack Nicholson took it for this film over Gene Hackman and The French Connection 2. Al Pacino for Dog Day Afternoon, Maximilian Schell for Man in the Glass Booth, and James Whitmore for Give Him Hell, Harry. And actress in a drama, Louise Fletcher for Cuckoo's Nest, beat out Karen Black for Day of the Locust, Faye Dunaway for Three Days of the Condor, Marilyn Hassett for The Other Side of the Mountain, and Glenda Jackson for Hedda. Best performance in a comedy or musical, the actor actually had a tie for George Burns and Walter Matthau, both in The Sunshine Boys. They beat out Warren Beatty, James Kahn, and Peter Sellers. Actress went to Anne Margaret for Tommy, beating out Julie Christie, Goldie Hawn, Liza Minnelli, and Barbara Streisand. Best Supporting Performance in Comedy, Drama, or Musical. Supporting Actor went to Richard Benjamin for Sunshine Boys, beating out John Cazale, Charles Durning, Henry Gibson, and Burgess Meredith. Supporting Actress went to Brenda Vaccaro for Jacqueline Suzanne's Once Is Not Enough, beating out Ronnie Blakely, Geraldine Chaplin, Lee Grant, Barbara Harris, and Lily Tomlin. So six nominees for that one. Best Director, Milos Forman for Cuckoo's Nest beat out Robert Altman, Stanley Kubrick, Sidney Lumet, and Steven Spielberg for Jaws. So here, Spielberg bumped Fellini for the Golden Globes on an otherwise identical list. Best Screenplay, Cuckoo's Nest beat out Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, Nashville, and Sunshine Boys. Original Score, John Williams took it home for Jaws, beating out Funny Lady, Man Who Would Be King, Other Side of the Mountain, and Return of the Pink Panther. Original Song went to I'm Easy from Nashville. Beating out How Lucky Can You Get from Funny Lady, My Little Friend from Paper Tiger, Now That We're in Love from Whiffs, and Richard's Window from The Other Side of the Mountain. Foreign film went to Lies My Mother, My Father Told Me from Canada. Beating out And Now My Love, Hedda, The Magic Flute, and Section Special. Best documentary film, Youthquake, beat out Brother Can You Spare a Jime, Gentleman Tramp, Mustang, The House That Joe Built, The Other Half of the Sky, A China Memoir, and UFOs Past, Present, and Future. New Star of the Year actor, that went to Brad Dourif for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, beating out Robert Daltrey for Tommy, Jeffrey Linus for Lies My Father Told Me, Chris Sarandon for Dog Day Afternoon, and Ben Vereen for Funny Lady. And New Star of the Year actress went to Marilyn Hassett for Other Side of the Mountain, beating out Ronnie Blakely, Barbara Carrera for Nashville and Master, the Gun, or Master Gunfighter, respectively, Stockard Channing for The Fortune, Jeanette Clift for The Hiding Place, and Lily Tomlin for Nashville. So the new star of the year, and the two names I recognize on that nominations list, did not win. Stockard Channing and Lily Tomlin. Television, Best Series Drama, Kojak beat out Beretta, 
Columbo, Petroselli, and Police Story. Definitely a fondness for the detective genre there. Best series comedy or musical, Barney Miller, Beat Out All in the Family, Carol Burnett Show, Chico and the Man, and the Mary Tyler Moore. Best actor drama was a tie between Robert Blake for Beretta and Telly Savalas for Kojak. Beating out Peter Falk for Columbo, Carl Malden for Streets of San Francisco, and Barry Newman for Petrocelli. Best actress drama, Lee Remick, won for uh, Jenny, Lady Randolph Churchill. Beating out Angie Dickinson for Policewoman, Rosemary Harris for Notorious Woman, Michael Learned for The Waltons, and Lee Merriweather for Barnaby Jones. Best Actor, Comedy, or Musical Series went to Alan Alda for MASH. Beating out Johnny Carson for The Tonight Show, Red Fox for Sanford and Sons, Hal Linden for Barney Miller, Bob Newhart for The Bob Newhart Show, and Carol O'Connor for All in the Family. Best Actress, Comedy, or Musical went to Cloris Leachman for Phyllis. Beating out B. Arthur and Maude, Carol Burnett for The Carol Burnett Show, Valerie Harper for Rhoda, and Mary Tyler Moore for her show. Best Supporting Actor, that was a tie for Edward Ad- or Ed Asner for Mary Tyler Moore and Tim Conway for The Carol Burnett Show. Beating out Ted Knight, Rob Reiner, and Jimmy Walker. And Best Supporting Actress, Hermione Badley won for Maude. Beating out Susan Howard, Julie Kavner, and Nancy Walker with two nominations for two different shows. So any other general comments there? No, I think, you know, normally when we poke fun at the best new actor, best new actress for the year, it's because we can instantly think of two or three things that some of the more well-known names on the list were in before they were nominated for best new talent. Um, But I I don't think that applies this year. So, Paul, any comments before we go through how these have stood up on the Long-term readings on IMDb and Letterboxd? No, I, I, think, uh, I think we've kind of hit on everything that I have so far. All right, so we'll one, run through how history has remembered the winners, and then we will talk about what we'll be doing next month. So IMDb, of the nominees, the highest-rated nominee comes in third after the Chaos Class and the Chaos Class Failed the Class. Those are the top two, and those do not seem to be English-language films based on the names of the directors and stars. So the highest rated of the nominees is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, coming in at number three. Then Jaws comes in at 10, Barry Lyndon at 11, Dog Day Afternoon is number 13, and Nashville comes in at number 26. So as far as IMDb users are concerned, it appears that the Academy made the right choice. I will point out that Monty Python and the Holy Grail comes in at number eight. Looking at Letterboxd, of the nominees, Barry Lyndon is the highest, as the third highest rated film of the year. And then Cuckoo's Nest comes in at number 7, Dog Day Afternoon at number 8, Nashville at number 12, and Jaws at number 24. So Jaws is actually one notch below the Rocky Horror Picture Show for this year, and is the lowest rated of the nominees, but still much higher on the list than a lot of the, the nominees tend to come out in Again, they made strong picks for the nominees in this year, which has not always been the case, as we have discussed in the past and probably will again. So, but yeah, this is a rare case where I find myself more in line with the IMDb than with Letterboxd. I would agree with you there. And the two Letterboxd titles that come in above Barry Lyndon, the second highest of the year is Welfare, which might actually be a documentary, and the number one rated movie of the year is the complete movie edit of Doctor Who Genesis of the Daleks, which there's a lot of people who go through and just rate every Doctor Who supercut as a perfect five, and they're not. I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. I've seen everything that survives for the live action and most of the animated recreations, but... 
you you may or may not agree with me on this, Blaine. I think I would. I think I could argue that it was the best Doctor Who of the year. It is not better than the nominees for best picture this year. It's you know Genesis of the Daleks is arguably the best classic Doctor Who story. It it could be the best of the Tom Bakers, and it could be the best from Hartnell to McGann. But I wouldn't put it above Cuckoo's Nest or Jaws. No, 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 no. All right. So, um, shall we talk about next month? Before we do, do we want to cover who we would recommend this to? Or Right, we should. Sorry. That, that's part of the, the agenda that I was not looking at. Um, as, as long as you are old enough to understand that the fact that Canyon Rose are prostitutes is largely implied until McMurphy just flat out pays Candy to sleep with to sleep with Billy with no negotiation. He just knows her rates. But up to that point, it's it's a girl he likes. You don't know if it's professional or if it's hobby for her up to that point. Right? So as long as you're old enough to understand what this is, because there's a lot that's implied rather than stated, go for it. I mean, this is just a great movie. I, uh, I saw this again in high school. Uh, I was probably 15, I'm guessing. And I think that's probably the earliest you should see it. I think under you know younger than that, you're not gonna really get it or understand it. And I I think that's that's like the starting age for this movie. And then you know anything over that is fine. I I agree. I think you need to at least be high school age to probably tolerate it. And I would say probably your twenties to your thirties to fully appreciate it. And I'm not trying to be ageist. This, but but the one thing that you said that really struck out to me, Paul, is this is a film that has layers that kind of reveal itself to you as you get older. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as you have a greater understanding of life and people and, you know, I think our society today is a little bit more aware of different types of mental illnesses. So if if we were as enlightened 30 years ago as as we are now, I probably would have looked at it differently then. But just the same, I, I do think you need to be a little older to appreciate it. I think, you know, younger, you you look more at the comedy level of the performances and, and get more of a kick out of it and don't realize the significance of them. But that's, you know, that's okay from an enjoyment per, point of view. Right. You know, it's just a matter of, I, I think it, you know, there are layers to it and, and you you appreciate them more as you become slightly more sophisticated. Okay, so if you watch it younger, watch it again when you're older. <laughs> that works for me, at least. Okay, so next month, we are actually going to be looking at the 50th winner, which is the halfway mark for the mandate for this podcast. And that winner is Rocky, which beat out all the President's Men, Bound for Glory, Network, and Taxi Driver. And schedules permitting, we will have a guest with us for that one, too. So please join us again next month, and thank you for listening. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.